0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. Just go to bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. The podcast is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Going online without ExpressVPN, well, that's like using your smartphone without the protective case. Your data is always valuable. Fire up the app and click one button visit expressvpn.com gold and get an extra three months free today we got the highly anticipated september jobs report non-farm payroll report and of course every month they seem to be highly anticipated it seems like the jobs numbers are always the ones that are the most important potentially the biggest market movers. Of course, that wasn't always the case, but it's been that case for quite some time now. But one of the reasons I think that this particular jobs report was so highly anticipated was because Powell himself specifically mentioned this jobs report as being very instrumental in the Fed's decision on whether or not to begin the taper because he kept referencing the September jobs report. The Fed wants to see that report get another look at the job situation before it decides on a taper because remember the taper is supposed to start before the end of this year. So obviously, we're in the fourth quarter. The September jobs report is the last report of the third quarter. And so if they're going to taper in the next few months, they don't have a lot of data other than what they just got in order to make that decision and to announce it. So this was an important number. Also, the expectation for the number was 475,000 jobs, which would have been a vast improvement over the prior month, 235,000. But even though that was the expectation, most people expected the number to beat that. People were looking for a better number. There was all sorts of whisper numbers that were much higher than the consensus. In fact, the range of estimates did go as high as 650,000 jobs. So I think that you even had some people that thought we may have come in above that. The low end was 250000 but nobody was looking for a number that would come anywhere near the 250000 which is why this was a big shocker when we got the actual report and we found out that only 194,000 jobs were created in September. So this is way below estimates, even below the low range, but of course, if you factor in that most people expected a beat, that they expected the number to come in well north of that consensus. It's an even bigger miss considering how far south we ended up. Now, there was one consolation. They revised up the... August number. So it's not as bad as originally reported. It was initially reported, as I said, 235,000. That was upwardly revised to 366,000. But if you want to look at the sharp decline between August and September, the fact that we went down from 366,000 all the way to 194 might be another problem in and of itself. I suppose the only silver lining in this cloud is that a lot of the weakness resulted from government job losses and if we're going to lose jobs it's government jobs that are better for the economy because they're generally less productive and they rely on the taxpayer for support whereas private sector jobs are self-sustaining because they're paid out of the profits of an enterprise government generates no profits so the only way to pay government workers is through taxes. So if government workers are not employed, uh, that is actually a benefit for the taxpayer because they're now relieved of the burden of paying their salaries. And of course, a lot of the government work that's done actually interferes with productivity. We're actually better off without those workers because the workers are simply getting in the way of the productivity of everybody else. So the economy really needs fewer people on government payrolls. I think a lot of the decline had to do with education. Now, whether or not we need fewer teachers or not, that's another subject. I'm not really sure who was let go in government education, whether it was bureaucrats or whether it was teachers. Uh, But the more important thing for now is that the number was a lot smaller. Even if you factor in the jobs that were lost, even if none of those government jobs were lost, the number still would have been way below estimates. So if this is the number that the Fed was hanging its hat on for confirmation that the data supported a taper, well, clearly, now that this number is out, if the Fed was basing a decision to taper on this number, well, it's not going to taper, which is basically what I've been saying all along, that the Fed is just bluffing when it comes to any movement to take the punch bowl away. But look at some of the other numbers. The unemployment number, that actually came down It was 5.2% in August. It was supposed to notch down to 5.1. Instead, it collapsed all the way down to 4.8. So you normally might think, well, that's a good thing, right? Because the unemployment rate really came down. Well, one of the reasons it came down is because people left the labor force. The labor force participation rate actually went down from 61.7% to 61.6%, which is another reason that the Fed ain't going to taper. Because after all, Powell specifically points to labor force participation as indication that we're nowhere near full employment. Because he's not just looking at the official unemployment numbers that only keep score for the people in the game. He's looking at all the people on the sidelines that he knows could come into the game. They could decide they want jobs and they could join the ranks of the unemployed. But right now, they're happily not working. Maybe they've got a better deal from another source. And so they're not looking for work, but they're potentially there to go back into the labor force. And so if Pal is also paying attention to participation, the fact that the rate went down is just another reason why the Fed is not going to taper before the end of the year. And of course, if it's not going to start to taper, when's it going to start raising rates? Because again, Powell has already said that the rate raising process, liftoff, that's not even going to happen until tapering is completed. And if they're not even going to start the taper this year because the data doesn't support it, well, how are they going to get around to the rate hikes? Another statistic on jobs, average hourly earnings, they shot up 0.6 on the month. That was ahead of the 0.4 consensus, but the 0.6 gain on the prior month was revised down to just 0.4. So when you average them out, it's basically a push. That's why the year over year number came out exactly as expected up 4.6% versus the 4.3% in the prior month which was actually revised down to 4% but now it was made up in September but 4.6% year-over-year gain that is a big nominal gain in wages but of course real wages are falling and that's because consumer prices are up way more than 4.6%, especially if you measure the prices that people are actually paying rather than the ones the government is pretending they're paying. But even if you use the official statistics for the year-over-year increase in consumer prices, it is well north of the nominal increase in wages. So real wages are... Are falling. The bottom line, though, is this is a weak jobs report, especially when everybody was expecting a strong jobs report. We got the opposite of that. And this really should have been a game changer, I think, in the markets. But really, it didn't have much of an effect on any of the markets, in particular, the gold market, because you would have thought that this type of number, a very weak, economic number would have caused a big rally in the price of gold. And in fact, there was a rally early on. I mean, gold started out up about 20 bucks, maybe a little more. It immediately rallied. Gold was up maybe five or six bucks before the number. And when we got the number, gold went up, which is what you would expect, weaker economy. But then as the oil price really started to rise, that started to push up long-term bond yield. In fact, the yield on the 10-year got above 1.6%. I think the high that I saw intraday was 1.617. The yield on the 30-year bond got as high as 2.177. So these are the highest yields that either the 10-year or the 30-year have made of this move. In fact, you probably have to go back to, I think, June to see a higher yield. And the rise in interest rates in bond yields, that ultimately weighed on the price of gold. And gold surrendered the entire $20 rally. I don't think I saw it trade negative on the day, but it was only up about a buck or so. So all of that rally was lost based on the fact that interest rates were rising. And in fact, neither gold nor silver prices managed to recover after that early morning sell-off. Gold finished with just about a dollar, two dollar gain, just above 1756, 757, and now silver up about three cents, about 2260. So again, another very disappointing day for the gold bugs, where you have all this inflation news combined with weak economic data, which would normally be the perfect cocktail for a huge gold rally and instead the rally fizzled out the gold and silver mining stocks did a little bit better I mean they should have been up way more but the GDX did manage to gain a little less than one percent about half of the gain that it had early in the morning on the higher open the GDXJ the junior miners doing a little bit better up almost one and a half percent again, below their early morning highs. But if you wanna take some consolation, none of the stocks came close to going negative or any of these indexes, even as the price of gold lost all of its rally, the gold stocks still managed to hang on to about half of theirs. It's always been difficult to run a business, but now with COVID, it's harder than ever. Government compounds the problem with all sorts of cumbersome and complicated regulations, none more onerous than those that deal with employees. Those are the issues that can really kill you. You got wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and hiring your own HR manager ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically for small business owners. You get your own dedicated HR manager who will craft HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it at all for just 99 bucks a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from being one of your biggest liabilities to one of your greatest strengths. In fact, your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or real-time chat. For anything from onboarding to terminations, they will customize your policies to fit your business and they'll help you manage your employees day to day and do it all for $99 a month. The best part is month to month, there are no hidden fees and you can cancel anytime. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Now, also at the same time, you had a lot of people that were looking at the move up in oil prices. You know, oil prices did get above $80 a barrel. This is the first time, I think, since 2014 that oil has traded north of $80 a barrel. And again, I've been predicting $80 a barrel all year, and we finally hit the price. Now, we didn't hold that price into the close, but we did end up settling above $79 a barrel. So very, very strong. And I think it was the rising oil prices and other commodity prices are also going up. That is what is spooking the bond market. So the bond market is clearly not falling and yields are not rising because of a strong economy. In fact, we got evidence today of a weak economy with this much weaker than expected jobs report. Normally, that type of miss in a non-farm payroll report would have sent bond prices rising. Yields would have tanked based on this bad news on the economy. Instead, yields went up because of inflation, because of the implications, I think, for surging energy prices on consumer prices. And so bond yields are only rising because of inflation. They're not rising because of a strong economy, but higher inflation. That is not negative for gold. Inflation driving bond prices down should also be driving gold prices up. The only reason it's not is because the market still expects the Fed to fight inflation. Every time we see more evidence of higher inflation, gold gets hammered because investors assume that the Fed's gonna do something. The narrative pretty much goes like this. The Fed thought inflation was transitory and they were wrong. And because they were wrong, as more evidence manifests itself that shows that they were wrong, now the Fed is going to have to change their policy and they're going to have to be more aggressive. In fact, I heard a lot of people on television actually concerned about the Fed overshooting when it comes to rates, meaning that they end up waiting so long to fight inflation because they believe it's transitory and it turns out that it's not, now the Fed is going to raise rates so much in order to catch up because they're really behind the curve, the Fed is going to overshoot so that the policy mistake is going to be waiting too long to raise rates and then ultimately raising them too much right, and hurting the economy. And it's the fear that the Fed is going to get too aggressive on rate hikes that is also undermining gold. But this is all a bunch of nonsense. How anybody could think that the risk is that the Fed is too tight, that they get out in front of the inflation curve, that they overshoot, there's no way that's going to happen. The risk is the reverse. The risk is that the Fed waits so long to raise rates that by the time they do, it's too little too late, right? They're so far behind the curve, they can never bend it. They're going to be behind it forever, which is where they're going to be. And in fact... These rising bond yields should not be negative for gold because real yields are actually falling even as nominal yields are rising. That is the only consideration when it comes to gold. Nominal yields don't matter. It's the real yield after inflation. And when you have negative real yield, which is what we have now, that is very bullish for gold. And when those real yields are getting even more negative, which is exactly what's happening, that's an even stronger case for gold. But again, so many people are looking at gold's failure to rally in the face of all of this inflation news as some type of evidence that gold is not even an inflation hedge anymore because it's not working. They're not understanding the fact that people aren't buying gold as an inflation hedge because they don't think there's any inflation to hedge because they're confident that the Fed is gonna put out the fire before it really gets burning. And so because everybody is so worried about the Fed aggressively fighting inflation with rate hikes that they somehow think are gonna be negative for gold, they're not buying gold. And you know, the latest proponent of, of this thesis is JP Morgan, because they were out with a research note yesterday in which they're basically reiterating the Bitcoin propaganda that gold is no longer an inflation hedge because Bitcoin does it better. And in fact, JP Morgan was writing that they're seeing institutional money getting out of gold and into bitcoin which first of all i don't really believe because there's not much institutional money that's in gold in the first place i mean institutions were so underrated in gold i mean they want nothing to do with gold so it's not like you've got all these institutions that were sitting on all this gold and now decided that they'd rather hedge inflation with bitcoin they weren't sitting on any gold now Are there some institutions that are buying Bitcoin? Probably, but they probably weren't buying any gold because it wasn't sexy enough. It wasn't moving up enough, but Bitcoin is. Bitcoin has got that sexy story going on that it's gonna go way up and everyone's gonna buy it. So I can certainly see a small segment of the institutions biting on that, right? Participating in the FOMO, especially when it's other people's money they're able to risk and getting into Bitcoin. But I think that the institutions that are gambling on Bitcoin are just gambling on Bitcoin instead of gambling on something else. I don't think they're taking the money out of their gold bucket because I don't think they have much money in the gold bucket to begin with. I think they're just taking money out of other speculative investments that they were making and now they're speculating on Bitcoin instead. I think the institutions that really get it, that really understand the threat of inflation and the problems with the US economy who bought gold, I think they're holding on to their gold. I think they may be frustrated that the gold hasn't gone up, but I don't think they're throwing in the towel and they're buying Bitcoin. You know, if anything, it seems to me that this report is designed maybe to get people to buy Bitcoin, which I think is rich because the reason that JP Morgan wants people to buy Bitcoin, it's more because they don't want people to buy gold. I mean, it's no secret that JP Morgan is not a friend of the gold market. I mean, a lot of people always accuse JP Morgan of manipulating the price of gold, artificially suppressing gold. So one way to do that, if they wanted to do that, would be to divert demand away from gold toward Bitcoin. So to the extent that JP Morgan can convince people to buy Bitcoin instead of gold, then that maybe keeps a little bit of a lid on the gold price or takes away some of the buying that might've driven it higher. Because that's what everybody's concerned about. The government doesn't give a damn about the price of Bitcoin. And, you know, one of the other reasons that Bitcoin is rising is because several U.S. government officials have publicly stated that they have no intention of banning Bitcoin the way China did, which was never that much of a threat in the first place. But somehow when they admit that they're not going to ban it, this helped generate a lot of buying, but just because they're not going to ban it doesn't mean they're not going to regulate the hell out of it, which is what they are going to do. They're going to regulate it, and they're going to tax it, and that is going to be a big problem for all these cryptocurrencies. But one of the reasons they're not gonna ban it is because they don't fear it. They're not worried about it. If they were worried about it, if they actually thought it was gonna replace the dollar or do some real damage, then sure, they might ban it. But because they have no concern about that, they're just gonna let people buy it, but they are gonna regulate it, they are gonna tax it. And believe me, once it crashes, they're gonna use it as an excuse to launch all sorts of new regulations on a lot of markets, not just on the cryptocurrency markets. I think everybody in the financial services industry is going to end up with more regulation as a result of all the losses in the crypto space. But one of the specific reasons that JP Morgan listed as why gold was no longer an inflation hedge was they pointed out the interest rates and they said that gold was more acting as a proxy to real interest rates that if real interest rates are rising then that's pushing the gold price down but if real interest rates are falling then the gold price will go up and they're looking at the rising bond yields and assuming that those rising bond yields mean that there's a rise in real yields but that's not the case real yields are not rising I don't know what JP Morgan is talking about. Real yields are falling. I mean, what inflation number are they using to come to the conclusion that this small increase in yields, the 10-year is still yielding 1.6%. So what was it yielding before? 1%, I mean, the lowest it got was a little bit below 1%. But back then, inflation was under 2%. Now, even the way the government measures inflation, it's 6%. And in the real world, it's much higher than that. So in reality, real yields have plunged. So you can't say gold is not going up because real yields are rising. Real yields aren't rising. They're falling. The reason that gold is not going up, again, it's not because it's not an inflation hedge. It's because people don't think that there's any inflation to hedge. I mean, they think there is inflation, but they think the Federal Reserve is gonna hedge it for them because the Fed has said that. We're not gonna let inflation get out of control. We're gonna keep inflation at 2%. We're gonna use the tools. We're gonna do what's necessary. And for some reason, a lot of people have a hard time giving up on that fantasy. They think it's gonna be true. Maybe they don't wanna really think about the implications of what's actually going on. Because if you look at the data that came out today, with any objectivity, we got a very weak jobs report. We got surging oil prices going above $80 a barrel for the first time in many years. You've got rising bond yields. So bond yields rising even as economic data is weak. So you're not getting interest rates coming down to help stimulate a weak economy. You're getting a backup in interest rates which sedates a weakening economy. You got the US dollar index down on the day. I mean, normally, if the interest rates are rising, that actually pulls up the dollar. Instead, the dollar went down. So a weakening dollar with rising consumer prices, rising bond yields and weak economic data, that spells stagflation. I mean, stagflation is here. In fact, look at the GDP estimates by the Atlanta Fed. The GDP now, On Wednesday, they slashed the number to 1.3%. I think it was 2.3% prior to that. When they first started estimating Q3 of 2021 back in June, the original estimates was for better than 7%. I think maybe seven and a quarter or something was what they were forecasting for Q3. They're now forecasting just 1.3% growth annualized for the third quarter. They came out today and they reiterated that forecast. So they didn't make any changes. They came out with the same number that they had on Wednesday. But still, that is a very low number. I mean, people keep wanting to talk about how we have this red-hot economy. We've got this booming economy. Well, how is a 1.3% GDP for the third quarter? Since when does that constitute economic boom? How is that red-hot? Obviously, we're cooling down dramatically. The only thing that's not cooling is the CPI. Price increases are accelerating. So this is stagflation. Now, if we are in stagflation, clearly the Fed's not going to raise rates. But what if the Fed is in this box where the economy is weak and inflation keeps getting worse? Well, that means they have no ability to fight the inflation. In fact, they're going to be forced to to create more inflation to try to stimulate a weakening economy. And then we get into this self-perpetuating vicious cycle of a weakening economy causing more monetary stimulus, which causes more inflation, higher consumer prices, which weakens the economy, which causes the Fed to print more money, creating more inflation to stimulate the economy. And now prices go even higher and we get into this cycle and there's no way out and we have this implosion And that's what's coming. Nobody really wants to acknowledge that. So everybody just pretends that the Fed's got it all under control and that this surprise persistence of inflation simply means the Fed is going to have to raise rates sooner rather than later. And everybody is now so worried that they're going to raise rates too much, which is the last thing that anybody should be worried about. It's not that they're going to raise them too much. It's that they're not going to raise them at all or that by the time they finally raise them again, it's going to be too little, too late to make a difference. Going online without Express VPN, well that's like using your smartphone without a protective case. Most of the time you're probably just fine, but all it takes is that one accidental drop onto some solid concrete to make you wish that you had protected yourself. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in a cafe, a hotel, airport, etc., your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial data, etc. You know, it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is all that's needed. A smart 12-year-old can do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal information on the dark web. That's why you need to use ExpressVPN. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so the hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's super secure. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. Just fire up the app and click one button to get protected. Works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more so you can stay secure on the go. I use it all the time myself. Matter of fact, just the other day, I went to... Netflix to watch a show and I realized I forgot to fire up my ExpressVPN because the only way I can watch the show is when I'm watching through the VPN because otherwise the content is blocked because I'm living in Puerto Rico but access to additional content is just a perk the more important benefit is to secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com gold that's expressvpn. E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com gold and you get an extra three months free that's expressvpn.com gold turning a little bit to politics the republicans made a deal with the democrats in the senate so the leadership came together and they decided to somehow extend the deadline on the debt ceiling I'm not really sure what the mechanics are. If they raised the ceiling, they suspended the ceiling, whatever they did, they pushed off the date when we're supposedly going to default to sometime in December. So that buys them some breathing room to come up with a solution to allow the U.S. government to keep on going deeper and deeper into debt. And of course, this is heralded as good news, right? Oh, wait, we avoided this crisis. In fact, we got a rally in the stock market yesterday, I think, with that as the catalyst. That was basically the good news that, hey, we're going to keep going into debt, so everything is great, right? We're not going to act responsibly and and try to put a stop to all the debt. We're just going to keep on borrowing and keep on spending. And so on that good news, the market rallied. But the real effect of their decision is to pave the way for an eventual increase in the debt ceiling or maybe even a complete abolition because now you have a sitting secretary of the treasury you have a lot of people up on capitol hill that say look let's just get rid of the debt ceiling because it doesn't do anything because we always raise it and it simply allows for a lot of political grandstanding it results in unnecessary concern in the market and we just need to reassure the market that we're never going to have a default what we need to do is abolish the debt ceiling completely and that may happen i mean we may now have a situation where we get rid of it but even if we keep it and we keep raising it and in fact you know for all the talk that the republicans do about debt right they had a chance to do something when the republicans had the white house and both houses of Congress, and they did nothing about the debt. And so they talk about the debt when they're out of power, they do nothing about it when they have power. So it should be pretty obvious that the sky's the limit when it comes to the debt, whether we have some kind of phony official ceiling or not. And again, as I've been saying, the real problem is not the debt ceiling, the real problem is the debt itself and that the debt keeps getting bigger and bigger. And what happened on Capitol Hill is not good news, right? The fact that America is going to continue to not pay its bills. And again, I get so frustrated when they say America always pays its bills. No, it doesn't. America never pays its bills. That's why we got 28 trillion in debt. Right? People that pay their bills don't have debt because they've paid off their bills. It's when you don't pay your bills that you're loaded up with debt. And we got all this debt and we wanna keep on piling on more debt because not only don't we wanna pay our bills, we can't pay our bills. All we can do is go deeper into debt because we can't pay our bills. And this is what the increase in the debt ceiling or the suspension of the debt ceiling accomplished. It allows America to continue to not pay its bills and go deeper into debt while pretending that it's good for the money when clearly it's not if we have to default the minute we can't borrow more that's an admission that we're broke again we didn't reassure our creditors don't you worry you're going to get paid in full even if we can't raise the debt ceiling. We'll raise taxes. We'll cut spending. No, no, no. We can't raise the debt ceiling. The first thing we're doing is defaulting on treasuries, right? That was what they said. So they pretty much admitted how broke we are. And anybody who's holding on the U.S. treasuries is a complete idiot, especially since we've just told them that it's only a matter of time and they're going to lose. Either they're going to lose because we default or they're going to lose because we inflate. But either way, they're going down, which, again, is one of the reasons why the bond market is falling. I think more people are waking up to the fact that U.S. treasuries are a losing deal and they don't want to hold them. I mean, think about it. Even though the yields are up, a 10-year treasury yielding 1.6%, what the hell is that? I mean, is inflation ever going to come down even below 2%? I doubt it. It may not get below 4%. Who knows if we'll ever get below 5% anytime soon? Who's going to clip coupons at 1.6%? Nobody. Nobody's going to own those bonds. That's why the price is going down. And that is not a negative for the price of gold. That is a positive for the price of gold. Because even though gold doesn't have a yield, it doesn't have a negative yield. Bonds have negative real yields. The knock on gold historically was the opportunity cost of owning gold. Hey, don't own gold because you can own US treasuries and get four or 5% real yields on treasuries. And so why own gold and get nothing? But if the alternative is hey, you can own treasuries and lose four or 5% a year. Well, now you have a strong reason to buy gold because there isn't an opportunity cost of buying gold. The opportunity cost is owning treasuries because if you own treasuries, you are guaranteed to lose. And so if you want to avoid the loss, you got to get out of treasuries. Well, what are you going to get into? Where are you going to put your safe money if you're not going to put it in treasuries? You sure as hell aren't going to put it in Bitcoin, right? If you really want your money safe, if you're buying 10-year treasuries because you're trying to get a safe 1.5% yield, right? And you realize that it's not 1.5% because inflation is making it 3 or negative 4%, and you want to avoid losing 3 or 4% a year, you're not going to take the risk of losing half your money by buying Bitcoin, no. So ultimately, that money is going to go into gold once the public wakes up to the reality that they've got something to fear. But right now, I think the fear on Wall Street is that the price of gold might actually go up, right? And that's why I think if JP Morgan is trying to tout Bitcoin as an alternative to gold, it's because they wanna slow the process of gold going up. Because if gold was really moving, right? If gold had a big move up today, and let's say gold was back over $2,000 an ounce or $2,500 an ounce, 3,000, if gold was really moving, That would be a huge problem for the U.S., for the U.S. economy, for the treasury, for the whole fiat monetary system, because that would be an indication of a real monetary crisis. That kind of move up in the price of gold, that would shake confidence in the dollar and again, in the entire fiat system, which is why a big move up in the price of gold scares the hell out of the status quo. It scares the hell out of Wall Street. It scares the hell out of the governments. So they don't want the price of gold to go way up. And the fact that it's not going up right now is providing them with some relief because it's allowing them to continue these reckless policies. It's like, think about gold as the canary in the coal mine, right? And so if the canary dies, the coal miners are gonna run out of the mine because they realize there's a problem. But if you're trying to kill the miners, if that's your goal, well, then you wanna keep the canary alive long enough so that the miners end up suffocating because they don't realize that there's a problem because the canary you know, is in there chirping. And so that's what's going on. The gold canary is acting as if everything is fine in this monetary coal mine, but Bitcoin doesn't matter, right? Bitcoin at $55,000. Bitcoin has gone from zero to 55,000 and it hasn't done anything to shake confidence in the US dollar. So the government doesn't care. I mean, what happens if Bitcoin goes to 100000 What happens if it goes to 200000 Nothing. It doesn't matter to Wall Street. It doesn't matter to the government. It has no effect on the dollar. It only has an effect on the people inside that Bitcoin bubble. Yes, if the Bitcoin bubble gets bigger, more people will lose money when it pops. And to the extent that some of the people that got in already, they'll get out if they get out with a bigger gain. But that's just a zero-sum transfer from the people who make money selling their Bitcoin, right? They get money, and that's offset by the people who lose money buying Bitcoin or any of these other crazy cryptocurrencies that people are buying now. In fact, the altcoins are going ballistic right now. But all of this is happening with no effect on the financial system, no effect on the bond market, no effect on the foreign exchange market. If we even saw a fraction of that gain in the price of gold, The price of gold went up 20%. All hell might break loose just from that move. But obviously, I think once gold moves up 20%, it can move up another 20% because we're going to break out of this congestion and kill that false myth that gold is no longer an inflation hedge. Because once people actually fear inflation because they realize that the Fed is permanently behind the curve, that the Fed is not gonna fight this inflation, that it's a bluff, they are gonna go rushing into gold. And when that happens, that's gonna destroy this myth that Bitcoin is a new gold. And that, hey, because gold's not going up, well, that's why we should buy Bitcoin. What happens when gold starts going up? Gold actually performs and now it reclaims the mantle as the inflation hedge, well, now what happens? That totally steals whatever new thunder Bitcoin got out of this false narrative. And if gold really starts to move up against Bitcoin, what happens if some of the money that's trapped in Bitcoin now wants to get into gold? It's gonna be very difficult. I mean, buying gold won't be nearly as hard as selling Bitcoin, because if you have a lot of people who wanna get out of their Bitcoin in a short period of time, that market will completely implode. So it's not so much that they're gonna miss out on a gain in gold, it's that they're gonna lose so much money trying to get rid of their Bitcoin. And so they're not gonna be able to buy nearly as much gold because they would have blown all their money on Bitcoin first. Another negative news story that I read, which of course is being spun as a positive, is the fact that 136 nations have now signed on to this global minimum corporate tax. One of the last holdouts being Ireland because Ireland is very famous for having low taxes. The corporate tax rate in Ireland is just 12.5%. And so now it's gonna raise that to 15 although I read that they got a little bit of an exemption. So for smaller companies they can still have the 12.5% rate, but larger companies, they're going to be paying at 15%. So you got a few last holdouts, and now they've got all these countries that have agreed, according to the OECD, this will raise about $150 billion in additional tax revenue. But I want to talk about this whole concept of this minimum corporate tax and how negative this is for the world that the governments of the world, and obviously not every nation in the world has signed onto it, but they got a lot of countries that have signed on and who knows what kind of pressure is gonna be put on the nations that are not taking part. But number one, the real sad fact about this global minimum tax is that it's the United States that is the instigator. We were pushing the world to adopt this global minimum tax. So instead of being a beacon for limited government and freedom and low taxes, the United States is now taking charge. We are the leader in moving the entire world towards higher taxes. And so higher taxes by definition means less freedom because the more of your income is taken by government, the less free you are. You have less money to do the things that you want because the government took that money from you to do the things that they want. And of course, the ideal corporate tax rate should be zero. Why should we tax corporations? Why not tax the individual shareholders instead of the corporations, right? Because that makes a lot more sense to me especially if you want to consider that some of the shareholders of corporations may not be very wealthy people. I mean, you have a lot of, you know, widows and orphans, right, that own stock and that collect dividends. Why do you want to tax them? You know, the interesting thing is there could be some relatively poor person that owns some stock and maybe they don't even earn enough income personally to even be subjected to the income tax, right? Their income is so low that we've decided not to tax them, but they actually get some dividend income. Well, we're taxing them through the corporation because the corporation's a pass-through. The corporation itself doesn't pay any taxes. The shareholders pay the taxes. Now, sometimes the taxes end up getting paid by the customer in the form of higher prices, or by the worker in the form of lower wages, but the one entity that doesn't pay is the corporation itself, because the corporation is nothing. It's an abstraction. So it's either the shareholders, the workers, or the customers. That's who's being taxed. So how about no taxes on corporations, and then if you wanna tax their customers, have a sales tax. If you wanna tax the workers, have a payroll tax. And if you wanna tax the shareholders, have an income tax on the shareholders so that they pay money on the dividends when they're received. But, you know, the reason the politicians like to tax corporations is because people don't realize they're being taxed because the government says, oh, we're just taxing this big, rich, evil corporation without realizing where the corporations themselves are getting the money to pay the tax. So ideally, there should be zero corporate tax. Now the U.S. government is trying to make sure that everybody has a tax and the minimum level is 15%. Now another big problem I have with this is that I don't think the minimum is going to be there for long. I think now that the U.S. has gotten all of these countries to agree to this concept that there should be some global minimum tax and nobody should be allowed to have a tax rate That's below the minimum, right? Now that all these countries have signed on to that concept and they support a global minimum, well, what's the next thing they do? Well, let's start raising the minimum. Because obviously, if they started out with a higher minimum, say 30% or 35%, a lot of countries would have balked at that. They wouldn't have signed on. Well, it's the concept of slowly boiling the frog, right? Just turn up the heat a little bit at a time. So you get everybody to agree to 15%. And then, I don't know, a year or two later, hey, 15% isn't low enough. Let's go up to 18%. What's an extra 3%? Once you've already signed on to 15, you're probably not going to bail on 18. And so now it goes up to 18. Then somebody brings it up to 20, 25, 30. Who knows? Eventually, we're going to be looking at much, much higher corporate taxes all around the world. And of course, if we can have a minimum corporate tax rate, why not a minimum personal tax rate too? I mean, we've decided that in theory there should be some minimum rate of tax for corporations. Well, why not a minimum rate of tax for individuals, right? It's the camel's nose under the tent. Uh, This is opening up a Pandora's box that should have been left closed. But somehow the media, the governments have got us all accepting the fact that this is a good thing, that we've had this global minimum tax. Now, if I told you that a bunch of corporations We're going to collude with each other to fix prices, to say, hey, we're not going to allow prices below a certain level. Would anybody think that was a good thing, right? That we have all these companies colluding in order to get a higher price than the free market, right? Everybody would say that's bad. In fact, If the government knows you're doing that, well, they're going to say you're violating the Antitrust Act. It's either you violate the Sherman or the Clayton Act and we're going to break you up because that's illegal, right? It is illegal. The U.S. government has said that companies cannot come together and rig a market. They can't fix prices and eliminate competition because they say, hey, competition is a good thing. We want companies to compete with one another. We don't want them to collude in order to rip off the customer. Well, that's exactly what these 136 countries are doing with this global minimum tax. They are colluding with one another. They're basically forming this gigantic cartel and they're saying this is the minimum price for taxes because prior to this agreement, all of these countries were in competition with one another. And the way governments compete is through low taxes because the consumer, right, the corporation, businesses can move around the globe and they can go to where they're treated best. So in order to entice companies to move to your country, you give them a better deal. You give them a lower tax rate. So all these countries competed with one another. I mean, Ireland got a lot of businesses to relocate to Ireland because Ireland offered a more competitive tax rate. They were at 12 and a half percent. And so companies decide, okay, let's move to Ireland. There was competition. What the governments want now is, hey, they don't want competition. They wanna charge higher prices, right? Higher taxes. And they don't want other countries competing away their profits by undercutting them. If anybody tried that in the private sector, they would be prosecuted. You guys are breaking the law, you're colluding. But now all these governments are doing it and we're supposed to applaud it as if it's a good thing because now we have less competition. Now true countries can still compete because a country can have a 16% rate or a 15% rate to compete with somebody with a 20% rate. But what you can't do is have a 10% rate. And obviously, there is a cost to relocating a business to a more friendlier tax jurisdiction. And so to the extent that the benefit can be somewhat limited, then the ability of companies to relocate is also limited because the savings aren't as great. And again, if I'm right, and this is just the opening bid at 15% and we're going higher and higher, we're going to eventually kill all of the tax competition. And that is going to be a bad thing because the way the politicians try to spin it is that, hey, these tax havens are causing all the honest people to pay more taxes, right? Because some companies pull up stakes and leave, And they seek out these tax havens. That means the rest of us who don't leave, who stay in the higher tax country, well, our taxes go up even more because now we've got to carry all this extra weight because these companies have left. They're not paying their fair share now. So now we have to pick up the slack. And so that is why we need this global minimum tax to prevent companies from leaving the higher tax countries and therefore shifting the burden to the people who don't leave and they end up paying more taxes. Well, that is what the government is saying. But the reality is what's going to happen. Once the government eliminates tax competition, taxes are going up. They're not going down. I mean, the reason that people aren't paying even higher taxes now is because of competition. One of the reasons that some countries aren't raising their taxes is because they know that if they raise taxes too high, the businesses they're taxing are going to leave and go to a country that has a lower tax. So these tax havens, contrary to what the governments claim, are not keeping other people's taxes higher than normal, they're keeping other people's taxes lower because the governments are held in check. They can't raise taxes as much as they want because they know it might cost them revenue as companies pull up stakes and move for greener pastures. But the harder you make it to avoid those high taxes, the less competition there is from lower tax countries the easier it is for high-tax countries to raise their taxes even more. And that is really the goal of the United States. It doesn't want to cut your taxes by forcing the rest of the world to increase theirs. They want to force the rest of the world to increase their taxes so we can jack ours up even more. And where are they going to be concentrated? Not on the rich, not on the billionaires, but on the middle class, on average Americans. And of course, as I've been saying, the biggest tax of them all is not going to be the income tax. It is going to be the inflation tax. That is going to be the killer. That's what it's going to destroy uh, the retirement plans, the savings of most Americans. They're going to get wiped out to inflation. They need an inflation hedge. They might not know it yet, but they need it. And they need a real inflation hedge. They need precious metals. And of course, they need stocks around the world in real assets, real businesses, real dividend streams. In fact, if you look at a lot of the stocks that are particularly linked to the inflation itself, look at the oil stocks, most of them making new 52-week highs today. Look at the agriculture stocks. Look at stocks that are directly benefiting from the rising prices that are being caused by the inflation. Investors may not be piling in the gold stocks because they're afraid the Fed is going to fight the inflation in the future but they're piling into these other stocks because inflation right now is driving up their earnings. And so these stocks also act as a great inflation hedge. I think, again, the best hedge ultimately is gonna end up being these mining stocks, especially to people who are buying them now because they still haven't priced in any of this inflation because they don't expect it to last. And when they find out how wrong they are, these prices have to completely reverse to reflect the new reality rather than that old fantasy. But in the meantime, those other inflation hedges are working. And when the dollar starts to fall, which it will, they're going to work even better because the foreign dividend-paying stocks are going to be paying dividends in currencies that are appreciating dramatically relative to the U.S. dollar.